The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Okay, and we're back with our intrepid asset management team. So, of course, we have Dave Armstrong. Intrepid. Yes, you- <laughs> I like it. <laughs> if if our listeners had any idea about how long we've been working on the tech setup to get going for this episode, you would know that intrepid is the right word for the day. You guys, it's true. We're, we're, we're like so. we're like at the six hour troubleshooting mark right now, aren't we? Little little over <laughs> exactly. It's about midnight. Right. So anyway, Dave Armstrong, of course, and then we have Aaron Hay. Hey guys. Aaron. And Nate Tonsegger. Hey, everyone. Hi, Nate. So this is our Q3 market recap episode. Before I kind of hand it over to Dave to some share his thoughts, kind of initial thoughts about what's been going on, I do want to make sure everyone listening to this, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, go back and check out an episode we just released on September 27th. It's called A Quick Update on the Recent Market Pullback. This was an episode we recorded in response to there was a you know a big market volatility the week prior. So Aaron and Dave share their thoughts on the recent market volatility, inflation, consumer sentiment, and staying the course. So if you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go do so. But Dave, kind of tell us kind of what's on your mind before we dive into the quarter specifically. Yeah, so two things are on, well, three, well, 25, but a couple of things. One, I would just like to say here in the intro that I'm excited because this off the wall podcast is sort of a new thing that we've started and it's getting a lot of momentum. I really appreciate all the feedback. I love it. If you like it, a huge favor. If you could just go leave a review on Apple Podcasts, because what people do is they, they go look at this like, is this worth listening to? And if they see some recent, even it's like, hey, this is really great, really liked or stuff like that. When people see current reviews, I think they're just more inclined to give it a try. So that. But second of all, I want to give ourselves a little bit of pat on the back because we just crossed the 6,000 total download mark. And that's a lot. I, you know, like 6,000 people have chose to listen to what we're saying. And if my high school principal had any idea that 6,000 people would want to listen to me, I think he's he would not believe that that was the case. But those are two things about the podcast. But as it relates to what am I thinking, I wrote a blog back a couple weeks ago around the 26th of September. And it was titled something like, you know, you don't remember the pullbacks where you didn't make mistakes. And I started off that podcast by just talking about how in the industry – we are kind of brought up as thinking everybody's competition. And what I've kind of discovered, I know we've all kind of discovered, is that our competitors are really our colleagues. And so we all get together and hang out and we talk. We all end up talking about the business or the markets or whatever. And I wrote a couple bullet points about what some of the consensus was with everyone, all of our colleagues. And I'll just rattle them off kind of quick here. But everybody agreed like, hey, look, you know, bear markets are painful. <laughs> they suck and nobody likes them. Right? Duh. But here was the interesting thing, too, is that everybody seems to think that it gets really easy for investors to believe all the doom and gloom predictions when the markets are already down and you're already feeling crappy. So sort of like if 
it's down 20% and somebody is pitching a doom and gloom prediction. It's sort of like, well, I can see that as being reality because we're already down 20%. I'm already in that mindset anyway. And I don't know if that's really the best gut reaction to be acting on. And then another really interesting one was that what investors are really afraid of isn't how much money they do or don't have right now. It's that they won't have the money that they need when they need it. So if you're 35 years old and you're looking at your 401k balance right now, and you're afraid that you won't have that money when you're 60 years old and you can start taking it out. I mean, that, I don't think that's a reasonable perspective as an investor to have. And you know, investors get scared that what's happening right now is still going to exist in the future. And just this week, I put a blog out that was like, hey, the stock market's undefeated. It's batting a thousand. It's undefeated. You just don't know how long it takes to come back. So I could say, hey, the stock market was undefeated in 2000. And then you're like, hey, Dave, it's 2010. It's a lost decade. The stock market's undefeated. It's, okay, yeah, in snapshots of time, it is defeated. But over the long run, it's just not. So just some perspective to set. Because I know, Nate, I'm going to toss over you to talk about some some statistics from the third quarter. But I just, you know, from a mental perspective, I think those are some important things to just kind of keep in mind. You can go check that blog out. It's on our website. You're spot on, Dave. You know, I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in these kind of scenarios. You see the markets down and all of a sudden you want to feel doom and gloom. It's easier to feel doom and gloom. So, and, you know, I don't want to focus too much on the numbers because there's so much meaning behind the numbers, which we'll dive into, but just kind of give high level summary, right? Through now Q3, we're seeing Dow down 19%, almost 20, S&P down 24, NASDAQ down 32. It's easy to feel that doom and gloom. But I think another blog you wrote, Dave, with the three things, and you might have to correct me here, they're either interesting, actionable, or both. You know, I would say these numbers right now, they're interesting. And even a more interesting part of the market to me is really the bond market. You know, I think back in the previous Q2 update, we talked a lot about Fed rates and inflation. We'll get back to that a little bit because state and Nate always got to carry that through. But really, the bond yields is what is driving a lot of this action. You know, you're seeing 10-year yields climbing closer to 4% and two-year yields over 4%. You're hearing a lot about inverted yield curves, about different spreads. You know, there's so much going on in the bond market right now that for years, when interest rates were so low, no one was talking about. And, you know, it was bound to happen. We weren't going to stay at zero forever. We were always going to move. The questions were going to be how far and how fast. I think that's what's really surprised people is the speed of the bond market moves. You know, a lot of debt and financing, not just for the U.S. governments, but for the corporate sector, too, is based off government yields. You can't really plan effectively for a business or for growth of a business when you wake up one morning and your interest rate costs may have doubled overnight. Now, good and bad from that, right? If money is very cheap, it means anyone can get it. Now that we're starting to see higher yields, it will likely lead to slower growth in the private sector. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. What it will do is weed out what people call zombie companies. Companies that get funding that are going nowhere are already dead and have been brought back to life based on low interest costs. You know, you're seeing some of those not get funded as easily. So it's kind of been the stock market's been driven a lot by just overall bond yields. Yeah. And I'll tell you, just in the interest of kind of tacking on to what you were saying there too, just the, the mania surrounding a lot of other stuff. I think it's been completely washed out of the system. You couldn't you couldn't turn on a TV without hearing about an NFT or a SPAC a couple of years ago, right? And now it's just kind of like, all right, who's buying NFT? I don't even see people talk about it anymore. And the people who are talking about cryptocurrency are just hoping it comes back. And 
this is what happens when you have a lot of excess. And like you're saying, Nate, a lot of that stuff just probably won't come back. Just like, you know, Webvan or drcoop.com didn't come back after the tech explosion in the early 2000s, which were my formative years in the industry. You know, I started keeping track of what the Dow Jones was doing in 1990 because that's when I started. That's my first recollection of investing. And so, you know, the 90s and then the 2000s and 2008. So it just got a lot of formative. And, and this was just really reminiscent of that. But here's the thing, like when all those bubble companies washed out after the tech wreck happened, the market was on a great course to re- rebound up until the, you know, 2007 financial crisis or the financial crisis started in 2007, essentially started developing in 2007. And then, okay, if you just stop right there, the market was recovering from those bubble manias. Something else happened, right? Something else will always happen, but a lot of that stuff's gone and it's never coming back. So I want to go back to the bonds, what you were saying, Nate. So if someone listening to this hasn't wanted to invest in bonds for the past few years because the yields were bad, should they consider investing in bonds now? And and if so, why? It is probably the question that I'm seeing most from the analysts, investment, whoever you want to talk to. What they're bringing up is, what do we do with bonds? If you've owned them, it looks a little different. You know, when I started my career, it's been what we call TINA. Now, TINA stands for there is no alternative. And really, people with interest rates at zero were being pushed almost towards stocks in order to find some kind of investment growth. Well, I don't want to say it's the death of Tina, but now that bonds are, you know, yielding, like I mentioned, the two-year bond over 4%, it's starting to be something that a lot of investors are considering adding to their portfolios. You know, you're even seeing money market mutual funds starting to yield over 2%. There is now an alternative to stocks for a lot of investors. So if you haven't held bonds before, now might be a time to consider looking at what it could do for your portfolio. I've heard a lot about how bonds didn't offer any diversification in 2022. You know, you're seeing the U.S. Barclays Ag almost down 15% through the first three quarters. That's historic. But we were coming from a historically low level. We were coming from zero. There was always going to be some kind of price depreciation as interest rates moved up. It was just as much how you want to stomach. Well, now we're not at zero. Now we're at 4%. It's possible that if interest rates move lower, if we do go into a deeper, more prolonged recession, you could see price appreciation from bonds. At a minimum, you're locking in 4% guaranteed from the U.S. government if you hold that paper to maturity. So it's not necessarily right for everyone, but it's definitely becoming part of the conversation again, is how do we manage bond cash allocations to add value to portfolios? Can I just ask, I want to ask like a basic finance question. Is there any difference with what you're talking about if you're if you're thinking about investing in individual bonds or bond mutual funds? Or I'm sorry, bond ETFs is what I meant to say. Yes, I would say yes. Now, there's people that may disagree with me, but individual bonds, their price does move up and down as interest rates move. But as long as you hold to maturity, you're going to get your principal along with the interest payments back, assuming the issuer, whether it's the U.S. government, a corporate, whoever, doesn't go into default. Bond ETFs are actively trading these bonds as the prices are moving. So your bond ETF might go up and down, 
but there's no set maturity date on that ETF. There is no point where that ETF will give you your money back plus that interest rate up front. So yes, there is risks in the ETFs. That's why recently I think individual bonds are seeing more appetite from investors, let's say, because they know just hold it to maturity, especially in the US government side where defaults are very low. Can you talk about the concept of a a bond ladder then, if you're thinking about individual bonds? Sure. So I'll let Aaron chime in as well. Him and I work with bond ladders every so often. But essentially what you're doing is you're buying a series of bonds with varying maturity dates, some with shorter maturities, some with longer maturities. And what you're essentially doing is locking in certain interest rates, like I mentioned, with those individual bonds throughout a long time period. You know, you might have some bonds that mature within a year. You'll get your interest plus your principal back, and you can roll that back into the ladder if you need or take the cash. But what you're doing is you're setting up a very predictable stream of principal and income payments over a time horizon that you select with this ladder. Yeah, I'll go back to your comments on this is the same thing for for bond mutual funds or mainly for ETFs too that that track indices you know, something that might track a one to three year treasury index, or you can, you can do it with any, any sort of bond market, you know, corporates high yield, the same logic sort of applies, right? You know, Nate laid out what a bond ladder does for an individual client. It's very transparent and predictable in terms of the the coupon income you're going to receive and then cash flows from principal repayments. So the caveat there is assuming that no issuer defaults on either a coupon payment or a, or a principal repayment, right? you know for a fact, usually to the day of when you're going to be receiving those cash flows. The same intuition sort of applies with those funds and you know ETFs. So as long as you end up holding whatever ETF you own, not necessarily through maturity because there is no maturity for these, right? What you want to do is you want to ensure that your, your holding period is at least whatever the, the duration of your ETF is. So if you, let's just be very simple here. Let's say you have a, an ETF that holds a certain portion of a, of a bond index. It has a duration of just over five years. You know, as long as you hold that investment, you know, over five years or right to that five-year period, you're more than likely going to lock in that entire total return and you're going to experience the same type of thing that you would with an individual bond ladder. Where people get into trouble is they buy something with a long duration, rates go up, the price of the investment goes down, they panic and then they sell. So as long as you're holding through duration, you should be okay. So think about it like this, Aaron, because you're we're talking about bonds and duration and stuff like that. But let me just here's another way of thinking about it. Let's just say I buy a house for five hundred thousand dollars, and then I agree to sell it to a buyer in the future for some amount of money, ten years, because I'm going to live in the house for ten years. So because I already know how much money I'm going to get for the house when I sell it in ten years, I don't really care what it's worth three years from now because. I've agreed to live in it for 10 years and I've agreed to sell it to somebody and, I've, and I know what the price is going to be for it. So it's sort of like that. You wouldn't sell your house just because it goes down in value because you plan on owning it for X. I, you know, in this example, I plan on owning it for X, X years, 10 years. So same thing with the bonds. So it doesn't matter what they're worth if you're not selling them. And the whole thing about bond investing is pre-decide when you're going to sell those bonds and that's it. That's the end of it. And then you don't have to worry about how much they go down, as long as they don't go bankrupt or stop paying their interest payments or something like that. And that's why I think so many people, at least myself, being a math guy, love bond investing. It's just math. It's just math. And yes, you're pricing in default and credit risk, but there's ways that you can work on that. 
without getting extremely technical, you know, there's something what I always like looking at calling the high yield spread. And what that is, is just looking at the difference between very high quality investment grade bonds and high yield bonds. The larger the spread means investors are asking for more money to invest in high yield or riskier companies. When you're looking at across the economy and across the bond market, you're trying to look for times where that spread is huge. Because what that means is there's distress in the market. Investors are saying, I need a lot of money if I'm going to invest in risky companies. Spreads normally over the past 10 years have been around 4.5%. So what it's saying is I need a little bit more to invest in high yield companies. Where you see the blowouts are in big market events. You know, the pandemic, you saw those spreads get over 10 and a half. Housing crisis, which was a debt-based financial crisis, it got over 21 and a half. Even in the tech bubble, we were over 10 again. Right now, we're only at 5.12. So yes, above average. So we're acknowledging there's risks out in the economy, but by no means are we seeing distress in these kind of bond markets. And that really gets back to the default point. Because once again, if you're buying individual bonds, you're locking in that return as long as the company doesn't default on those interest payments or the principal. So you're seeing the markets are moving in a healthy way, at least on the bond side. Can we do a quick jargon check? Because you just mentioned two things. Of there. course. I want to make sure someone listening might understand. So you mentioned investment grade bonds and high yield bonds. How are they different? What qualifies as each? Because I think the naming is confusing, right? You hear high yield bonds, and you think that sounds good. Right. Exactly. Marketing and naming conventions. I got to say, it's it's an interesting thing. High yield. Yes, it kind of means exactly what it is. It's companies that are paying a high yield. While that sounds attractive on face value, the reason they have to pay a high yield is because they come from lower quality companies, companies that may not have strong earnings growth, predictable earnings growth. What you're doing is you're reviewing the company to see what is the likelihood of them being able to pay us back. And there's a couple different rating agencies. So I'm not going to get into the individual ratings. There's your Google homework if you want to see where the exact breakout is. But based on how companies are rated, they fall usually into one of those two buckets. High yield for the riskier companies, investment grade for the companies that I would say that they quote unquote are safer. They have a better balance sheet to help support the debt that they have to pay through bonds. Right. Think about it like a credit score with individuals, right? A bank is, is more likely to lend somebody money to buy a house. They have a high credit score. And if they have a low credit score, they still may be willing to lend them money. They're just going to charge them a higher interest rate because they're the bank is taking more risk. It's the same thing here. The trick is to find the person with the bad credit score who just was 30 days late on a phone bill payment, but has a great job and probably isn't going to default on the loan because you could charge them the higher interest rate and there's a very low probability of default. So there's more, you have to just know more about who you're lending to. And so high yield can be a little bit more tricky there. You can't just go in and say like, hey, look at how great the interest rate is on this high yield bond. I'm going to buy it because the interest rate may be really high because that thing is teetering, you know. And if you want to get even more nuanced, you can have, you know, companies aren't limited to one bond offering, right? Like a company is only going to have one ticker of stock, but companies more often than not have, you know, multiple bond offerings out there for multiple maturities. So it's also dependent on that too, you know, where it lies in terms of the capital stack in terms of repayment priority. So you could have a company conceivably with some investment grade bonds, but they also have some bonds out there that could be qualified as as high yield or junk as well. 
Thanks for explaining that. I think that's a little bit of a black box area that I want to make sure everyone understands. Any other thoughts on bonds and bonds yields before I kind of switch topics? The only thing I'd add, and I don't think this is a, a shock to anyone, but just adding to some of the Farmers Almanac statistics we put out here in the, the early part of the podcast, you know, we're doing this after the end of the third quarter. September was the second worst month for bonds in the last 30 years, with the, the worst month coming in in April of this year. So to Nate's point earlier, talking about the U.S. ag, this is a historically bad year, down close to 15%. It's something that, that people haven't seen going back 30, 40 years. So people for the longest time complaining about there's no juice in bonds, there's no yield. How am I supposed to, to get, you know, income in retirement or as a saver? Well, now you're you're starting to to see the the ability to do that as Nate laid out with where where yields are and what we're seeing in in the bond ladders these days. It's my my last take on it. Yeah, people haven't wanted to talk about bonds for a decade. Understandably, right? They're like why would I lock in these low interest rates? Okay, fine. If you were one of the people saying that in the past, you now have to be saying, okay, these yields are back where I would actually like to build a long-term laddered portfolio that I'm willing to buy and hold for a a certain amount of time and not sell the bonds if they go back down because you know when when yields go down the prices go up so you the opposite of that is true you're buying bonds at a discount right now you're getting a good yield you can lock that in and without mentioning the issuer Aaron because I know you'll skewer me for this but Aaron and I were talking earlier today about an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal about an issuer who will shall remain nameless on the podcast is issuing a bond that will mature in 100 years for 6.7% interest. So you could say like, okay, I will own that bond for a hundred years if it keeps paying 6.7% interest so long as the issuer is solvent. And, you know, so you look at it like that and say like, well, geez, how would you like to be earning 6.7% on 40% of your portfolio right now? Guaranteed, so long as they didn't default. I just think people need to be looking at it and saying, if I believe in buy low, sell high, and I believe in having a well-diversified portfolio, now might be a good time to start rethinking about an asset class that you may not have thought about for a decade. I could also make that argument about the stock market too, but yeah. I was going to say, so what, I mean, I think conventionally, right, you, you think bonds or retirees or people approaching retirement. Like, do you say the same thing to someone who is, is well out from retirement or is stock still the place for that? To be invested. I mean, I don't know if stocks are the place to be invested or bonds are the place to be invested. I think it kind of goes to like, hey, if you had a portfolio right now and you're looking at it and you're saying, wow, well, at least this portion of my bond portfolio, which I don't care has gone down in value because I have no intention of selling it, is spinning off 6.7% interest right now. Or even, I mean, even I saw some munis in the 4 and 5%, or let's just call it the 4% tax equivalent yield basis. So if you're if you're getting a 4% interest rate, guaranteed so long as the issuer doesn't go out of business, you may say to yourself, like, forget that it's a bond. Look at it and say, like, do I want to own something that is going to generate X percent of interest every single year, no matter what happens to the price of the bond, no matter what happens to the stock market, I'm getting that because, I mean, that's a pretty decent amount of money. If you put a million dollars into a bond portfolio that's yielding 5%, for the next 10 years, you're going to get 50 grand of cash every single year for 10 years. I would look at it from a cash flow perspective. And it kind of gets back to that point I mentioned earlier of the Tina. There is no alternative. You know, it's part of the conversation now. I mean, we're having a podcast about it because it is something that is worthwhile discussing with either your wealth advisor or within your asset allocation. You know, it 
it's not right for everyone, but it's definitely now a piece of the conversation that it hasn't been for a long time. Right. Don't dismiss it as an idea if you're thinking about it. I mean, like, think through it may ultimately not be a good idea, but I mean, I'll use this as a, as a pivot point. So it's not typical that you see the bond market and the stock market go down together, lockstep, almost the same amount of money or the same percentage loss, right? We're seeing that. I'm taking some liberties there with the percentages, but let's just call it even. So again, bond investors, if they own the individual securities, shouldn't care that their bond portfolio is down 20%. They should care if the interest rate, if the interest is still being paid, probably is, because I haven't heard about a whole lot of defaults in munis or investment grades. So you, you've got that. But the stock market is also down now too. So what's interesting about the stock market is, okay, just some quick like trip down memory lane eight, nine months ago. When we turned the calendar year, the Dow was around 37,000. 37,000. Now it's at 30, right? And change, okay. So how psyched would you be if the market went back to say 34,000? Would you be psyched? And how many people are saying right now, one of these two different things? Wow, I am really glad that I trimmed some positions and sold some stuff in January because I sold at the top. There are people out there who are saying that, right? Mostly people who are like, I'm going to rebuild my cash bucket for the year for spending. And they did it, like perfect timing. They did it. They didn't do it because they thought the stock market was going to go down to 30 or 28,000, the Dow I'm talking about. They did it because they needed cash, right? And now they're happy that they did it. And then how many people listening are saying to themselves, geez, I really wish that I'd raised some cash back when it was 37,000 because I need the money now and, this, and the market's at 30,000, 30, right? So there's a couple, and there's some people who are like, I don't care, I had cash, I'm good. So about six weeks ago, I made a comment in a blog where I was like, hey, listen, the Dow is back up to 34,000, right? If you are short cash, you should probably think about raising some now because yeah, we're still down 10, 12, 14% off the all-time high from January, I get it. But if you need cash, you know the market may keep going back up to 37,000. And in that case, you just say, ah, I raised cash a little bit early. But if it goes back down and you don't raise cash right now, you're still in the same position. And guess what happened? The market went back down. So. I think people just need to keep things in perspective about like always be looking at that cash so that you don't have to make drastic decisions in a market downturn like now. I mean, if the market goes up 10%, we'll be back to 34,000. That's essentially just rough math, right? So it may happen. So the question I would ask people just mentally is if the market went back to 34,000 and you're short cash, would you raise some cash at 34,000 or would you say to yourself, I'm going to wait for it to get back to 37,000? Because it could go right back down to 25000 So people's perspective on like, hey, I'm just going to wait until it gets back, whatever. I think people would be well served if they took decisions that sounded something like, hey, the market's at a pretty good level right now. And, I need, and I'm, a little, I'm down to like six months of cash on hand. I'm going to raise a little bit right now. And if I, if I get the top of the market, great. But I just don't want to catch the bottom of the market. So get those big decisions right. The market is a great place for people to put cash to work if they've been sitting on cash, if they had the 12 to 18 months of cash and they haven't had to live out of it and they're sitting on it, you can make the argument now's a good time to get back into the market because look, I'll tell you, here, here is a good rule of thumb. Market goes down 20%, you invest period, that's it. You always put money to work, right? Why? Well, you may not hit the bottom, but I'm telling you right now, you fast forward five years, you can be really happy where you bought it. 
So I want to I wanna switch topics. We're recording this, obviously, beginning of October. And despite all the Halloween decorations that you see around, I think people's natural thought is to think about, okay, what's in store for the rest of the year? Kind of where are we going to land? So can you guys share your thoughts as it's related to the final quarter of the year? No. Pass. Okay, great. Good answer. Aaron, Good Nate, answer. go ahead. I'm going I'm I'm to pass. Like, if, if I had any fidelity on what's going to happen in the fourth quarter. I know it seems cliche, but I wouldn't be sitting here right now. But let's have some fun. Let's have some fun. Yeah, we, we, we made our point. Isn't traditionally Q4 the strongest of all the quarters in the market? I don't know from a seasonality perspective. If it is or not, we could go check with our good friends at Bespoke or Ned Davis to see if that's the case. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of things happening in the fourth quarter, right? Like here's something we haven't talked about whatsoever. We've got midterm elections coming up, right? That may end up being what's going to be driving headlines and driving sentiment from here through the end of the year. We you just don't know what's going to take over the news cycle. So I'm kind of throwing my hands up here. The good thing, though, for if we're going to take this back from a from a nuts and bolts perspective of what we're kind of doing, and I'll point out one of our models, flexible asset allocation, because we really don't kind of care about that. It tends to be, I'm not going to use the word reactive, but we're going to be responsive to data and what's going on on the ground as it pertains to trends, both in the macroeconomic and, and capital markets. So, you know, right now, I, I would expect us to remain pretty weak going into to year end, but you just never know what's going to happen with these midterm elections. And that could really be some sort of a catalyst going to send us higher. I'll say this from a sentiment perspective, then I'll shut up. You're seeing a lot of stuff right now, particularly on Twitter. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, for, you know, professionally and, and personally, just looking at different things. And no matter where you go, you're seeing an overabundance of people out there with really dire market calls right now. Nuriel Rabini, who is famous as, as Dr. Doom, he's a perma bear. He's called the last, you know, 10 of the last eight recessions. Like this guy is, is always doom and gloom. He's not the only one out there right now. You're, you're hearing people that are calling for some of these, you know, systematically important financial institutions to blow up. You know, Credit Suisse has been in the news here recently. There's a lot of articles out there in places like Seeking Alpha. And again, just random stuff on Twitter, people talking about the, the notional amount of derivatives in the system. And this is going to blow up the world. And just everything is incredibly bearish right now. And what tends to happen is when you get these types of these tops and, and sentiment, or I guess you'd say lows and sentiment, the market goes against you, right? Like the market tends to surprise people in the in the worst way possible. And if you're going to base up people are positioned just off of what they're writing about and what the, the attitude is in, in places like Twitter and Reddit and, and wherever, I think we're actually positioned for some sort of a, a market bounce. Now, I don't know if that's the beginning of a new long-term trend in stocks higher, or if it's just some sort of a, a bear market rally. But I, I actually think if you, if we actually want to have some fun with it and, and get specific here, I think we're going to conceivably rally from here to the end of the year. Yeah, I was revisiting my the blog that I wrote back in December of 2021, which talked about the predictions are fun to read, but don't take any action on them. And I posted a chart. I'll make sure this is linked in the show notes. But I put in there a chart and I just said, take a look at the skew of returns below. It is showing that the odds are in favor of investors being in the equity markets. And it's like a stacked skew to the right bar chart of the annual gains and losses during mid-year cycles in the S&P 500. And there's only four years on that chart where the market in a mid-year cycle was down greater than 15%, four years. 
1973 and 74, 2002 and 2008. That's it. And now it's, we're probably going to stack this year on top of that. There's a good good chance we stack this year on top of that. And I went on to say like, hey, don't mess around guessing next year. Be in the markets because you believe that the odds are in your favor. Of course, there's a chance that the odds go against you, but that's where a solid plan comes into play. A good plan should account for those times that the odds go against you. This means a reliable cash flow plan and resources to fund your cash needs in times when things don't go as planned. So that was my prediction last year. So my prediction was, hey, be in the equity markets because the odds are in your favor. And I was wrong. Or that assertion was wrong, right? Or it didn't work out. What ended up happening was this year fell into one of those categories where the odds are against you. So if you say like, hey, you have a 90% chance of being right, 10 times out of 100, you're wrong. The question is, what happens when those 10 years happen? Like when you're when you're wrong, you're playing the odds, odds are in your favor, 90%. What happens when you land on, on one of those 10 years? How much catastrophe is caused in your life? And that's where I get back to this whole like, Get the big decisions right so that when you land on one of those 10 years, it doesn't financially destroy you. You need to be financially unbreakable. I always like to say that. So what's my prediction for next year? I mean, I look at things and I say, and Aaron, you're right. We should go look at Bespoke. I know they publish this. I just don't know it off the top of my head. I'll put it in a block, but it's you know what happens the year after an election. Let's just say that doesn't matter. I'm going to just look at the historical forward-looking PE ratio of the S&P 500. And right now, it's sitting at just under 16 times, 15.9 something, okay? So that's that's an affordability index to get away from jargon, right? The lower that X number is, the more affordable the market is. The less money you have to pay for $1 of earnings. As the PE ratio goes up, you have to spend more dollars in order to get that same dollar of earnings out of a company. This is just an aggregate of the S&P 500. So the long, the 25-year average P/E ratio is 16.8, and we're at 15.9. Could it go down more? It absolutely could. Does it happen very often? We don't touch this, you know, level very often. So I would say, if you have cash, now is a pretty affordable time. You're only going to pay 15 times that one dollar of earnings versus back in January when it was more like above 20. So from an affordability standpoint, I think the market has a really good chance of going up sometime in the future. If you put some money to work right now, you make some some good returns. Well, and I think you're touching on a key point there. You know, the market is a tool of expectations and is always looking forward, right? That PE number is based on what our earnings are going to be in the future. That's why you said forward PE, right? And so where you can make money in the market, where you can add alpha to throw in portfolio manager talk is when you can identify what the market expects is different than what you think or believe will happen. Now, once again, rules-based investing, process-based investing, it's a fun exercise and I will definitely participate, but it's about what is the market expecting? You know, and I said previously when on the Q2 market update, you know, the stock market is being driven by two things, inflation and the Fed. And while there's elections coming up, I still think those are the two things that drive the returns over the next quarter. And we're finally starting to see some clarity on where the Fed might end up. I think that's what the market really needs. It's just clarity. Market hates uncertainty. You know, whether it's as simple as what's around the corner or what's going to happen in 20 years, you know, it 
they hate it. And you're seeing market expectations are fairly aligned with where the Fed is saying. The Fed is saying we're going to get to about four to 450 on the federal funds rate by the end of the year, maybe hike a little next year, but really we're just going to hold. And that's what the market and the Fed are both saying. So, you know, just it's a tool of expectation. So is there anything actionable about that? No. If the market is priced exactly like what the Fed is saying, then there's no difference there. Hopefully it pans out that way. Not saying it will, but I think we're seeing it move in the right direction. Okay. I got a prediction. Here it is. Everyone expects the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates until they break the economy and millions and millions of people are out of work, right? I mean, that's what everybody's worried about. That's why the Dow is at 30,000 right now and not 37,000. Everybody's worried that they're going to make a massive mistake. And I think there's a very high probability that they could make a massive mistake. So if I think it, everybody thinks it, the market thinks it, and the market is saying 30,000 on the Dow. Okay, fine. What happens if the Fed changes their mind? What happens to the market if they change their mind even slightly? I mean, it's going to go up. The smallest drop can make the biggest, biggest difference. And uh-huh. I think you're starting to see some of the groundwork. Like, you know, the Fed is a communication tool. As much as they do set a number interest rate, they're trying to set expectations, especially on the inflation side, which quick side note, we've seen long-term inflation expectations start to come lower. Good sign for the Fed that they may be achieving their job. But you're seeing, you know, people like the vice chair of the Fed come out and saying things that like, while the Fed won't pull back prematurely on tighter rates, it's very attentive to financial stability and the risk of the global spillovers. You know, when you get language like that, they're implicitly saying that they now have a third job, and that is not to blow up the world. So if you believe that they're just going to drive 120 miles an hour off the Grand Canyon, Thelma and Louise style, I just have a tough time believing it, right, Dave? The probability. Here's another communication tool for you. Ready? This is where I'm going to come to one of my predictions. There's another communication tool. It's called the United States Congress that represent their constituents. And you start talking about one guy, Chairman Powell, driving millions and millions of people out of jobs. I know a lot of people sitting up on Capitol Hill right now who are going to have a problem with that, starting with Elizabeth Warren. And if Elizabeth Warren starts seeing like, hey, we've got millions and millions of people out of work, she's going to start calling for his resignation. And when she starts calling for his resignation, there's a really good chance that it happens. So if he resigns, what happens? The market's going to go up because ostensibly they would be replacing him with a chairman that isn't going to put millions of people out of work. So there's my prediction. Okay. My prediction is if this keeps going and they keep trying, they keep communicating that they're going to break the economy, Elizabeth Warren will be on TV a lot calling for his resignation. There's my prediction. And if I'm wrong, it doesn't really matter, right? Because <laughs> everybody's got 18 months of cash and everybody's good to go. So it doesn't really matter if I'm right or wrong. So, Right. We're never betting the house. You have that cash buffer. You're not betting everything that you have. You make sure you have that cash you need. Yeah. Aaron, you want to take a flyer on a, on a prediction with me? You want to, you want to jump in the pool while the water's a little bit warm? Uh, I mean, I kind of gave you mine a little bit earlier. I, I think that we're going to be in the area of a pretty good bear market rally here over the next month, month and a half just because I think people are are so freaking bearish right now that a uh, sentiment is is so bad that when these types of things happen the market goes against that sentiment so yeah I wrote a big blog on sentiment back in on September right right around the same time September 27th so read that too so we'll put a link to that in show notes also but people feel like crap all right well as listeners know we're going to be back we already have planning for 
first week of January, maybe second week of January, we'll we'll revisit this and we'll see. We'll yeah, see how yeah. it kind of comes to bear. Well, I know we went we went 40 minutes, but I've got a tip for everybody who's like, ah, this podcast is just a little bit too long. Listen to it on 1.5 and you'll cut the time by two thirds or a third or whatever it is. You get my point. You can turn a 40 minute podcast into a 30 minute podcast by listening to us at 1.5 times speed. There's a tip exactly. for everybody. That's what my husband I'll put does. it in the show notes. So, hi, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. All right. With that, thank you guys. Thanks. All right, thank guys. You. We'll see y'all later. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he she will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.